Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. Everybody, welcome to Cornerstone. Uh, you guys did pick a great day to come to church or to tune in online. In fact, it's one of my favorite days because it's students own the weekend. At all five of our Cornerstone campuses this weekend, we've canceled our middle school and our high school services so that we could be here together with everyone, serving, but also worshiping together and sitting together. So this is what I wanna ask you to do. If you're at one of our Cornerstone venues, I want you to actually find a student next to you, if you see one, maybe that looks like they're under 18, and I want you to just go and give them a high five and say, you're welcome to sit with me whenever you come here. A couple people are doing it, good, good. Yeah. All right. Students, make sure you receive the high five, okay? Make sure you log off of your phone for a second and high five them next to you. And we need each other though, right? Like, like we need students, students need adults. Like we, we're the church, we need each other um, to thrive and to be what God wanted us to be. And statistics say that a lot of students, when they leave high school, they actually stop coming to church because they don't feel welcomed. And so uh, this is a church that welcomes students. Students, please don't forget that. You are welcomed here. You can sit with us, and we love having you. All right, my name is Clint Rutledge. I'm one of the high school pastors uh, at Cornerstone. Um, if you're new this weekend or joining the adult service, we're in week two of a series called Jesus Is?, where we're kind of sifting through the book of Luke and we're pulling out different stories that really highlight the characteristics and the traits of Jesus Christ. And so today we're gonna be in Luke chapter six, if you wanna start turning there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the first four books of the New Testament. So we'll be in the third book called Luke. And uh, we're gonna be following Jesus around the hills of the Galilee as he delivers what's known as the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew chapter five and then here in Luke chapter six. And we're gonna read Luke's version today. But before we start, um, I'm gonna pray for us and uh, just ask God to really truly meet us this morning. So Jesus, I just thank you so much for these words that you gave 2,000 years ago. It's so amazingly powerful that they still ring true today. In 2019, everything you said is just as applicable and just as transformative as it was then. And so I pray you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, starting in verse 17, it says, He went down with them, this is Jesus, and he stood on a level place. 
A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Okay, so Luke kind of paints the picture before he opens up the sermon of what Jesus said. He paints the picture of the setting of, of where this took place and the audience. He, he particularly pays attention to the audience. And so let's talk about the audience for a second. Luke says there was a large crowd of his disciples or followers there, but there was also a big audience of people that came from all over Judea. Okay, and so Judea is kind of down here. And, and they would have had to travel all the way up to the Galilee where Jesus was. And so it says they even came from the capital city of Jerusalem, which was about a, a week's journey on foot up to Galilee. And so they traveled a long way. It also says they came from the north. These are more Gentile areas, Gentile regions like Sidon and Tyre. In other words, like they're coming from all over. This was a mixed crowd. This was a diverse crowd. Th these people weren't all the same. They didn't have the same beliefs or views or opinions. They came from all over just to hear this guy Jesus. And I thought that's kind of like us. That's kind of like Cornerstone, right? Like, we're, we're, we spread across all of the East Bay, all of the Bay Area, right? We, we go from Brentwood uh, to Hayward to Walnut Creek to Danville to Livermore, even people joining us online in the prisons. Like, we're a diverse crowd, but we all come together for the same reason, to, to hear Jesus. Now, the question we have to ask, though, is, is we, we, I think we need to dig a little bit deeper and ask ourselves, why were they willing to travel so far? Okay, for us, it took us like maybe 10, 20 minutes to get to church. For them, it took like a week or maybe at least a few days to walk to where Jesus was. And so why did they do that? Why did they go out of their way to come to Jesus? What were they looking for? Well, Luke tells us in verse 18, he says specifically they came for two reasons, to hear him and to be healed. It says that some were sick with diseases, some were troubled by impure spirits, now remember, this is the first century, so they don't have like Kaiser Permanente on every corner. <laughs> they don't have immunization records in their back pockets. They don't have like healthcare cards. They don't have Tylenol in their cabinets. They don't have allergy medicine when they get the sniffles. Like they don't have any of that. They had witch doctors, which meant when they got sick, like they got desperate, desperate enough to travel a week for healing. But they didn't just come to to be healed. It all, they also came to hear Jesus. And so why were they so desperate to hear him? Well, my guess is that many of the people in this crowd, they wanted to hear Jesus's plans for their freedom. Who is this new king walking around talking about this new kingdom? Is he going to take down the great and mighty Roman empire? Is he going to finally bring freedom to our people? Remember, this is happening again in the first century, which was coming out of what's called the intertestamental period which was hundreds and hundreds of years where the Jewish people did not have any freedom. They were oppressed under uh, 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 strict uh, uh, kingdoms, okay? And right now it was Rome, okay? So they, they were used to being told what to do, uh, told where to worship, um, overtaxed, mistreated, left out, oppressed. In other words, these people were, were desperate for change. Revolts and uprisings were very common around this time. In fact, many believe that the setup of Jesus' sermon right here actually kind of mirrors a first century revolt. Revolutionaries, they always began kind of in the distance, in the shadows, on the mountains, in the hillsides, 
in the crevices and the cliffs, right? Because there they can gain a following. There they can be discreet. There they can, they can gain a following before they kind of overtake or, or go and, and run their revolution. And so, in other words, a lot of the people in the crowd, they came there hoping that Jesus would be their Mel Gibson, their Braveheart, right? By the way, I heard someone say that's an overrated movie. Raise your hand if you disagree with that comment. Yes, okay. Now, some students in here are like, I don't know who this blue-faced man is. So I got one for you guys, students. They wanted Jesus to be their Katniss. <laughs> Who's with me? <laughs> but the point is, the crowds, they traveled for days to get to Jesus because they were desperate to hear him and desperate to be healed. So let me ask you, have you ever came to Jesus in this kind of desperation? I did about a week ago when I fell into the American River. This was on a, our whitewater rafting trip that we took our seniors on uh, last Friday. Um, this is me in the back, and that was my face right before we hit this gigantic rock that everyone says was very small <laughs> that plunged me into the water, okay? And they tell you when you fall into the water while you're going through these rapids to, to stay calm, but it was hard for me to stay calm because, see, I grew up wearing goggles whenever I went in the water, and so my eyes were very sensitive. <laughs> and so, like, when water's splashing on my face, I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable, and everything's blurry. And then they tell you to put your feet, your toes out of the water so that they don't get, like, lodged under a rock and you get, suff you get sucked under. And so I'm just trying to keep my toes out of the water, and I'm leaning back, but what they don't tell you is there's all these jagged rocks right under the surface that are just gonna pelt you right in the backside, and you're gonna have kind of a bumpy ride. And so I'm having this bumpy ride, and I'm, my eyes are blurry, and there's water splashing all over me, and I, even like into my mouth, and I'm like kind of suffocating. I'm like, this is it, guys. Like, this is where I go. This is where I die. Like, like sorry, someone's gonna have to teach next weekend. Like, whatever. And to make it worse, I look over at my boat, my raft, and half the people are hysterically laughing. <laughs> and then the other half are listening to our guide scream, don't worry about Clint, just keep going. It's too dangerous right here. <laughs> and I was like, no, worry about Clint. Like, come back for me. But that's desperation. Uh, finally, I got back onto the raft and... Um, I don't think I let Jared's hand go for the rest of the trip. <laughs> but that's my face of desperation right there. Uh, now that's silly, but let me ask you, what are you desperate for today? What did you bring to church with you uh, desperate for Jesus to heal or to speak into or to help you with we all come with a smile, but right beneath the surface, for many of us, there's a little bit of desperation, at least in one area of our life. So the question I want to start with is, what are you desperate for today? Maybe it is an illness. Maybe you just got the note from the doctor and you're desperately afraid because it's not getting better, it's only getting worse. Or maybe it's a chronic pain that won't go away and the pain just stays with you every day and it's getting worse and you're desperate for healing you're desperate for comfort. 
Or maybe it's a financial peace or financial freedom. You're so tired of the debt. You're so tired of the bills piling up. You're so tired of feeling this stress and this pressure at the end of the month. You just can't take it anymore. And you're desperate for financial help. Or maybe it's a spouse. Like you've been searching your whole life for that perfect person, that, that, that person that'll complete you, that, that, that'll be, be your companion, and, and you just can't find them. And you're desperate for something. Or maybe it's the feelings of anxiety or depression that, that haunt so many of us, the dark clouds that just kind of hover over our soul, and we're desperate that God would just remove it and take it away so that we could find joy and peace again. Or maybe it's wisdom. You got a big job offer coming up. You got a big promotion coming up. You got a big decision coming up, and you need wisdom for. You're desperate to hear God tell you what to do. You're a senior in high school now, and you don't know what what career path you're going to choose. You don't know what college you're going to go to. You don't know what major you're going to go to. And you're like, what do I do? You're desperate for God to speak to you. What are you desperate for right now? And maybe it's not something big and crazy. Maybe it's something that seems small or insignificant, but to you it's a big deal. Listen, I don't know what struggles you have and what struggles you brought here, but we all come with the same desperation for Jesus to heal us, just like he was willing to do 2,000 years ago. So let's see how Jesus addresses this desperate crowd. Verse 20, it says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. All right, stop here for a second. Now, I've been writing sermons for about 11 years, so I've studied a little bit on the best practices of how to deliver a sermon And let me just tell you, Jesus is not off to a good start. (laughs) This is not what they teach you in seminary, okay? You're supposed to start with like a funny joke or like an opening, you know, like interesting fact or a story about whitewater rafting because you want to get the audience to know you and you want to get the audience to like you and let their guards down. Like you're not supposed to just start with the challenging stuff and the confusing stuff, but Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Like he goes right for the heart. He goes right for the challenging stuff. He goes right into the meat of the sermon. He opens by saying, we will be happy when we are poor. We will be happy when we are hungry. That word blessed, it means happy or satisfied or fulfilled. We'll be happy when we are hated or rejected. We will be happy when we are sad. I mean, it doesn't even seem to make sense. I could just see the crowds kind of scratching their heads in confusion at this point, right in the, middle, or right in the opening uh, statements of this sermon. Jesus, what are you talking about? We came here to be healed from these things, not to be told that we're blessed because of them. But Jesus keeps going. He takes it even a step further. Verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Okay, so this is the the picture that he paints of his kingdom. He says, In my kingdom, this is what will make you blessed, and this is what will make you not blessed. 
See, it's kind of flipped upside down from what we're used to. It's, it's inverted, it's different. Jesus goes right at this and says, it's gonna be upside down in my kingdom. Now that word woe that he uses, it, it's a, it comes from the Greek word uahi, uahi. Say that, uahi. Yeah, it's like a, um, that rugby chant, I don't know. Um, the haka. Okay, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a prophetic expression. The prophets used it, okay? So when they got up in front of people, it was a warning, right? It's an expression of grief. Condemnation is coming. Misery is coming. Sadness is coming. Desperation is coming. Jesus says everything that we've been taught to value in order to be happy is actually in the end what was gonna leave us the most miserable. Money, comfort, food, success, recognition, acceptance, it's all just a recipe for disaster. These are Jesus's words. Now, I don't know about you, but that pretty much, uh, that sums up like everything I grew up dreaming about. (laughs) Everything I grew up wanting, right? Like I didn't grow up going, oh, I can't wait to be bankrupt one day. Like, no, I wanted to be rich. I wanted to be famous. Like I wanted to be a professional baseball player so that everyone would love me and ask for my autograph, right? Like, did anyone else grow up like practicing your autograph? Just me? Like, I think I started practicing before I could even tie my shoe. I would just take blank pieces of paper and practice because I was convinced I was gonna be rich and famous. Like, that's what I grew up dreaming about. Don't judge me. (laughs) Stressing about your 401k and bank account. See, like we have this embedded in us. And then there's food. Oh man. (laughs) He goes after our food. Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry. That might be the most shocking one for us. Jesus, how can I be happy when I'm hungry? Don't you know that's actually when I'm the most upset? Like we actually developed a word for this. It's called hangry. Bad tempered or angry as a result of hunger. It's like a condition right? My poor wife, she struggles so much with this. (laughs) Especially like every 30 days or so, like, oh, it's the worst. (laughs) Especially when I go to get food and I come back and I get the order wrong. She gets really hangry at that moment. (laughs) Some of you guys are hangry right now. They didn't have the donut you wanted. Well, yeah, we, we worship food in a way. And Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Seriously, when was the last time you prayed for God to give you less food and less comfort? Like, that doesn't sound like the prayers that we pray, right? Like, we pray the exact opposite. Dear Jesus, please bless this fried chicken sandwich to my body. 30 minutes later, dear Jesus, please take this fried chicken sandwich out of my body. (laughs) Like, please help the Tums to do the miracle and I'll give you the credit. Like, those are the prayers that we pray. We pray for security, satisfaction, comforts, acceptance, approval. That's what we want because these are the values we're soaked in. These are the values we're immersed in. These are the things that we grew up believing we need to be fulfilled and blessed and happy. And so we take these values with us wherever we go. And here's the problem, guys. This is why I think Jesus hates this value system so much. Because we begin to use it 
to determine the value of people around us. And even worse, we use it to determine the value of ourselves. The other day this happened to me. I walked into a a, a room full of people. It was a meeting at work. And right away, within like three seconds, I had already identified like the value of everyone in that room. I had already identified the most influential, the most powerful, the, most, the best dressed, like who was gonna be the funniest, like who was gonna help me the most, who was gonna laugh at my jokes, who was gonna accept me the most. And based on those metrics, based on the values of the world, it, it dictated my behavior in that entire meeting. It dictated what I said, what I didn't say, the jokes I made, who I sat next to. And we do this all the time everywhere we go. We walk into the gym, we do the same thing. We kind of like judge people based on this value system and we rank people, we rank ourselves and where we fit in. We do this at school, we do this on campus, we do this in a room full of moms. We do this in almost every atmosphere we go to, at church even. We take these values everywhere we go. Students, you guys probably deal with it the most, to be honest. I mean, we remember what it was like to be in middle school and high school and walk onto those campuses every single day and walk into those classrooms every single day. And then the worst one was walking into the school dance and being like, okay, where do I fit? Where do I rank? Based on what the world tells me is important, based on what I'm wearing, what I look like, how much hair I have. (laughs) I always have to make a bald joke. I don't know why. And then there's social media. Oh, that can be the worst, right? Because there's actual metrics telling us, screaming at us, who's important, who's valuable, and who's not, and how important and how valuable we are. We go online, we're like, oh, that guy has 2,000 followers. They must be important. By the way, did you know that you could buy followers on like Twitter and Instagram? Like you could purchase followers. It's like, why would anyone ever do that? Because we're convinced that that's what's gonna make us happy. That's what's gonna make us filled. That's what's gonna make us feel valuable. Any parents out there? Oh man, parents, we are the worst at this, right? Like have you ever been watching your kid on the sports team and just like ranking where they are and how they fit, how they don't fit? (laughs) I remember... uh, my five-year-old was playing t-ball last year. He's five. And he got the biggest hit of the game. Biggest hit of the game. I'm not talking about the biggest hit for him. He got the biggest hit of the entire game. How do I know? How do I remember? Because it was the proudest I was all season. My, my chest was puffed out. My chin was held higher. I was like high-fiving all the dads around me. But I wasn't high-fiving them like, yeah, we're all awesome. I was high-fiving them like, yeah, I'm awesome because my son is awesome. Right? Like parents were the worst at this. But what happens when they strike out? What happens when they fail? See, it's exhausting, isn't it? This value system that we live in, which is why Jesus goes straight at it to open up his sermon in Luke 6. He looks directly at this desperate crowd, at this tired crowd, at this overwhelmed crowd who thinks that this is what they need to be satisfied. And he declares as boldly and clearly as he can, enough is enough. In my kingdom, the things that you used to value, they won't matter anymore. In my kingdom, the things that you used to think is gonna make you uh, feel fulfilled and satisfied and joyful is actually not gonna matter anymore. The people that you used to put on the outside are actually gonna be the people that are gonna be on the inside. He flips everything that we've come to know and believe in our culture upside down. 
So now, at this point, I think many of us are asking a question that we have to wrestle with. And that's this. What do we do with all of our stuff? What do we do with everything we've gained? What do we do with the money and the power and the reputation and the followers and the leadership and the influence that we do have? Like, is Jesus calling us here to just give it all away? Is he calling us to take on the calling of Mother Teresa and just move in with the poor? Is he calling us like he called the the rich young ruler in Luke 18 to sell all of our possessions and just give it away? Like, is that the fate of us all? Is that what he's asking us to do? Well, listen, that's a great question that you can wrestle with with God. What areas of your life is he asking you to just give it all away or give some of it away? That's a great question to ask. But as I've wrestled with it this past week, I think the conclusion that I came to, according to this sermon and what I think Jesus is trying to say, is that the answer is no. That's not necessary in order to be a follower of his. And we know this because there were many followers of Jesus that were very, very wealthy, okay? Last week, we talked about Matthew, who was a tax collector, wealthy enough to throw gigantic parties where the entire community was invited to, okay? In Luke uh, uh, 19, he talks about another tax collector, Zacchaeus, another very wealthy man who became a follower of his. In Luke 8, uh, he lists a, a, a group of women who were financially stable enough and wealthy enough to support Jesus' ministry and the 12 disciples. So they, w- they were well off enough, rich enough to support 13 men in their ministry. In other words, Jesus isn't telling us we have to become poor or sad or lonely to be his follower. But here's what I think he's asking us to do in this sermon. He's asking us to stop valuing and obsessing over those things. And he's asking us to start valuing people. I think that's what sits at the heart of this teaching. And I think really that's what sits at the heart of God's kingdom. It's people. It's always been about people. God created the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. It's always been about people and blessing people and and valuing people. And what happened when sin came into the world is those value systems turned upside down and all of a sudden it stopped becoming about people and people were important and people were valuable and it started becoming about self and and ranking and, and, and obsessing over what we have and what we can get and what we can attain. And Jesus is saying, forget about all that. Start valuing people. Now, the next question becomes, what does that look like? Like, how do we live that out? What does it look like to value people like Jesus values people? And as I've wrestled with that question, I I came up with just two things, or two Jesus is statements, since that kind of fits our our sermon title. Uh, Jesus is recklessly giving, and Jesus is recklessly forgiving. This is what it looks like to live this out, this Sermon on the Mount, this upside-down value system, This is what it looks like. Become like Jesus in being recklessly giving and become like Jesus in being recklessly forgiving. Now I chose that word reckless on purpose and I know it might make part of us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because it's wild, it's crazy, it's even a little bit irresponsible, it's careless, it's extravagant. But that's kind of my point here. Like Jesus' call in Luke 6 is uncomfortable. There's tension built into every part of this sermon, Because once again, Jesus is attacking everything that we've been told to value. So when we stand up against the world's values, it's going to look and feel uncomfortable. It's going to look and feel wild and crazy and extravagant and reckless. One of the best examples of this came from Jesus himself. 
In Luke chapter 15, he talks about the parable or the, or the story of the prodigal son. Some of you guys have heard this story, right? There's this son, the younger, there's an older son, a younger son. The younger son just wants to live a, an extravagant life of partying and, and doing whatever he wants. And so he asks his dad for the inheritance and he takes his dad's inheritance and he goes and he lives lavishly. In other words, that would be the equivalent of slapping his dad on the face saying, I don't need you and I don't need your money and I'm taking it all and running away, okay? And he runs away and he just lives it all out and he, he just parties and does whatever he wants. And then it says that he squanders everything and he ends up broke and homeless. He ends up in the mud in this pigsty. And one day he has this awakening and he goes, I don't know where else to go. Maybe I should go back home. And then he starts to think of his dad and what he took from him and all the shame and dishonor that he brought to his household and to his family. And he kind of starts to second guess that plan. He's like, I don't know if I can go home because dad's not gonna be happy. He probably won't accept me. But maybe, just maybe, he'll let me be one of his servants. He'll let me live on the corner of his land. And so he kind of starts walking home. I could just see him with his head down, not knowing what to expect. Now in those days, like if you brought that much dishonor and shame to your household, your dad was probably gonna meet you with a backhand because that's what a, a social superior would do to a social inferior when they brought shame upon their name. And so he was probably expecting at least some sort of discipline. But Jesus tells this parable and he turns it upside down. He says, when the father saw the son coming home from a far off distance, he, ran, he runs to his son. Now this is huge. This is reckless, okay? In that culture, men did not run because they would have had to pull their robes up and show their, their, their legs, which they didn't want to do because it brought more shame, and run with sandals on. I read a, uh, one person said it would have been the equivalent of like a dad today running down Main Street in their boxers, like in front of everyone sipping their morning coffee. Sorry for that visual. But that was the equivalent of the amount of shame that the dad was even doing as he was running off to his son. But why was he running? This is so important. He was running because he wanted to be the first to meet his son. Because he knew if someone else was the first to meet his son, they would have sent him away. They would have rejected him. They would have even backhanded him. They would have said, you don't belong here because of what you did. And so the father runs to meet him and when he gets there and he sees him face to face, it says he throws his arm around him and he kisses him and he gives him the ring on his finger and he gives him new sandals and he gives him the best robe and he says, come home, we're gonna throw a party because you're home and you're here and I love you and I accept you and you're my son and he kills the fattest calf and he gives him the fattest T-bone steak and they throw this awesome lavish, reckless party for his son because his son came home. And that's the reckless love of God. That's the reckless love of Jesus. But, and here's Jesus's big point, it makes someone uncomfortable. It makes the older son uncomfortable. It makes the older son upset. And he pulls his dad outside and he says, you can't do that. You're not allowed to treat him that way. You should have treated me that way. You should have thrown me the big party. I stayed home. I followed all the rules. I was the golden child. I didn't sin. I didn't do what everyone else was doing. Why does he get all, the, all this lavish love and reckless love? See, it was too reckless for the older son to handle. And he couldn't take God's grace and God's mercy because it's just not fair. 
And there's a part of us that have that older son living inside of us that says, I don't know if this is fair. I don't know if that makes sense. But listen to me. We are not the older brother. We are the prodigal son. We are the prodigal daughter. We ran from God. We became his enemy. And he lavishly and recklessly ran after us and saved us on a cross 2,000 years ago. He came from the glory seat of heaven to the manger in Bethlehem. He, 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 ripped, he was ripped apart and pulled apart on the cross from his father, the relationship that he enjoyed for all of eternity's past, he was bro- it was broken, it was ripped apart so that we could enjoy it, so that we could have a relationship with God. We are absolutely 100% the prodigal son, and when we realize the reckless love of the Father, it changes our lives and it saves us. That's how Jesus lived this out. And when we see it and when we feel it and when we experience it, then we begin to live it out. Have you ever met a reckless follower of Jesus? Oh, those guys are crazy. <laughs> like someone who really gets this, and they don't even care anymore. Like it reminds me of my friends Pam and Roland. Uh, these are, uh, this is a picture of Pam and Roland at In-N-Out after they did a service project with our high school students, which they do every month, and uh, they take them to In-N-Out after. Uh, that's Roland in the back, that's Pam with her tongue out. And, uh, Pam and Roland, though, every Sunday, right, uh, in the student center at our Livermore campus, uh, they, as soon as our high school service ends, they run in there and they start setting up chairs and setting up tables and bringing out a meal, a full meal that they prepare every Sunday or someone on their team prepares every Sunday, and they feed dozens and dozens of single moms and single dads and their children and sometimes they invite me and my family and we get to sit in with them and hear stories and pray together and eat together. And it's this awesome experience. But every time I see Pam and Roland doing that, Roland is always sweating, <laughs> especially when he's doing this. And he's like, and I just think to myself, like, dude, you're reckless. Like, why aren't you home napping? It's Sunday afternoon. Why aren't you watching football? Like, where do you get the money and the means and the resources to provide a meal every week? Like, this comes out of his own pocket. This comes out of his own ministry. Like, he, like where does he? And this is only Sunday afternoon, guys. Like, you should see Pam and Roland Monday through Saturday. It's not uncommon for me to get a, an email at, like, 2 a.m. from Roland, like, with, in all caps. Like, there's a, there's a single mom in our community that just lost her home. She's living in a van, and, and we need to help her. Church, we need to step up. And by, like, 8 a.m., he's raised, like, $1,000 to buy her a new, a new apartment or whatever. And it's like God answers those prayers. But he, he and Pam live recklessly. And sometimes I see it and I get confused. But every time I look closer, I smile more than I ever smile before because that's the kingdom of heaven lived out. He gets it. Pam gets it. And then there's another family I know, the, the Furzes. This is Jared and Carissa, and they just adopted their third uh, child to give them five children, all ages six and under. Yeah, talk about reckless. <laughs> talk about crazy. What do you think people think when they walk into to the restaurant? Oh, please don't sit that family next to me. Right, it looks a little wild and crazy and reckless, but what do you think they think when they look a little bit closer into the beautiful eyes of those babies that they adopted out of the foster care system in their time of need? Like Jared and Carissa are beautiful. They're living out this upside down value system, this kingdom of heaven, they're heroes. They're Christ followers. And this is what Jesus is getting at in Luke six. And when we live this way, people begin to notice 
And even if they think it's crazy or wild or reckless, somewhere deep down inside of them, they come to life like never before. Because this is the smelling salt of the human soul. This kind of reckless living, it wakes us up like never before. Because nobody wants to live under the constant pressures of the world's values. It's exhausting, it's crushing, it's never ending. People are desperate for a better way. But they need followers of Jesus, the church, to stand up and to show it to them. They need Christians to live this out in front of them and stop asking the questions, how much can I gain? But start asking the questions, how much can I give? of my life, of my time, of my resources, of my gifts, of my influence? And that's a good question to wrestle with today. What is God calling me to be reckless with in my life? I wish it stopped there, because that is the easy part. And over the next couple minutes, I wanna show you the hard part. I know, Jesus goes further, it's crazy. Verse 27, he talks not not just about giving, but about forgiving. And this is actually the main point of the message. And so let's, let's go over this last part and then we'll be done. Verse 27, Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, Turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. All right, this would have absolutely no doubt been the hardest part of the the message for the crowds to hear. Because remember, their enemy is Rome. They've been oppressed for Rome. Their parents have been oppressed by Rome. Their grandparents have been oppressed by foreign nations for hundreds of years. This is why Jesus uses these examples of turning the other cheek and giving not just your coat away, but your shirt too. Because these were Roman laws that he was appealing to. These were put into place by Roman citizens that were superior to all others to make sure that they they remained superior. Literally, the law stated that a Roman superior could backhand a social inferior without any questions asked in public. Here's one excerpt that goes into this a bit more that I read this week. It says... When a soldier decided that he needed a Jew's goods or services, resistance was always pointless. The Jewish subject better be quick to fetch water, strong enough to carry a load, and ready to give away his coat or else. If the subject could not perform the request to the soldier's liking, then a quick backhand to the face was not far behind. See, this is what the people have come to get rid of. And what Jesus does in their desperation is say, I want you to forgive. I want you to love the very people that you hate. And this is backwards. This is hard. This would have been when many of the crowd started to go home. Sorry, this Jesus guy, he's too ridiculous. He's too reckless. I was cool with loving the poor and the outcasts and the hungry, but loving my enemies, that's just too hard. Loving the people that hurt me, can't do it. I can give, but I cannot forgive. But see, this is the gut punch of the sermon. This is where the crowds separate. But this is the main point here. This is the meat, the middle. This is the very litmus test of the Christian faith. Will we go that next step? Will we take it all the way? Will we not just give, but will we forgive? But Clint, you don't know my enemy. You don't know my story. You don't know my past. 
you don't know what my dad did to me and my family when I was young. You don't know uh, what my ex-wife did and how she left us in the dust. You don't know how painful that was. You don't know what my coworker took from me. That promotion was supposed to be mine. They got all the credit that I worked hard for. You don't know my enemy. You don't know what it's like to be picked on and bullied and excluded and laughed at because of your age or your gender or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status, Clint. You don't know my pain. You don't know my struggle. You don't know my enemy. I can't forgive them. I tried forgiving them and it didn't work. That's just a Christian pie in the sky teaching. It's not reality, Clint. Maybe some of you feel that way right now because you tried forgiveness and it's just too hard. The broken relationship just doesn't seem to get fixed no matter what you try or what you do. And listen, if that's how you feel right now, this is what I think Jesus would say to you and to me and to us who struggle with forgiveness. He would say, I know. I know it's not easy. I know you can't do it in your own strength. For this one, you're gonna need a a higher strength. You're gonna need a higher power. You're gonna have to rely on something greater. Look at verse 19 again. When Jesus comes down from the mountain, it says that the crowds were all trying to touch him. Why were they trying to touch Jesus? Because power was coming from him and healing them all. You see, at the end of the day, that's the picture of this sermon. It's us desperately reaching out to Jesus because that's where our power comes from. The power to heal, the power to forgive, the power to fulfill, the power to give. It all comes from Jesus. Listen, this is so important. If we think that Jesus is just a good example that we need to follow, we will be crushed under the weight of his perfect life and his perfect expectations and the perfect law. Jesus is more than our example. He is our God. We come to him desperate for his power, desperate for his strength. That's why we worship him. That's why we give back to him. That's why we we do everything we do for him. That's why he has the glory because he has the power that we're desperate for. At the beginning, I asked you to think of the thing in your life that you were desperate for. Now I want you to replace that thing with just Jesus. Tell yourself, Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I'm desperate for. This is what's gonna fill those gaps and those cracks in my broken heart. The money, the status, the recognition, the promotion, the joy, the comforts, even the health, the healing. All that is great, but it will never satisfy me like Jesus will. Jesus is all I need. I remember when this hit me, it was like a gut punch. It was about 10 years ago. Um, It was right after the Haiti devastated, uh, I'm sorry, the earthquake devastated the country of Haiti. I think it was 2010. Well, about a year after that, um, we took a group of high school students right to the epicenter, right to the place where it happened, and we stayed with this orphanage um, for a week, and we got to hear stories from little children about how they lost homes and family members and moms and dads in this earthquake and how they lost uh, buildings, and the orphanage we were in was a replacement because the orphanage that they used to be in was was burned down in in the earthquake. And all week we heard their stories. And then we went to church on Sunday. And here's what happens when you go to church as a pastor in Haiti. They find out you're a pastor and they ask you to teach. (laughs) So if you ever go there, just be ready for that. 
And so I didn't know what to say, but I, you have to go up there. And so I just stood up there and, and I just thought about what I had read that morning, which was John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And it says, Jesus fed them till they were satisfied. Okay? But then if you keep reading that story, many people close the book after that, but there's a second part to that story. It says in, in verse 66 that the next day, the crowds, the multitudes, the 5,000, they actually left Jesus. They deserted Jesus because his teaching was too hard. And the only ones that stay are the 12. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are you gonna leave me too? And Peter says, we can't. We have nowhere else to go. You're the only one with the words of eternal life. And they stay with Jesus. And in that moment, I read those words and I looked at this Haitian crowd that had just lost everything. And I said something I'll never forget. I said, we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And I almost fainted in tears because that message was not for the Haitians. That message was for me. They were the ones that realized that more than I ever will because they had just lost everything. They had just lost family members. They had just lost homes, jobs, uh, whatever it was that they, that they were leaning on. They lost it all in that earthquake. And yet there they were at church, worshiping God louder and with more joy than I had ever seen before. I think their worship set lasted for two hours and it was just two songs. And at night when they, when they went back to worship, they didn't have any electricity or power. So guys just held up flashlights and see, all they wanted was just to be with Jesus because in their desperation, that's what they realized was important and what's all that mattered was just Jesus. See, what happens is sometimes we get all this stuff and we attain all this stuff and it makes us forget about Jesus. It makes us forget about our greatest need. And so Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago, listen to me. That stuff is not important if it draws you away from me. I am all you need. Be desperate for Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for, uh, for this message. I thank you so much for uh, the teaching that you gave 2,000 years ago. Um, so many times we clench our fists so tightly to the things of this world and it makes us lose sight of you. It makes us lose our dependence on you. So I pray over every person right now that whatever it is that's holding them back from, from seeing you and being with you and being desperate for you, I pray that you would actually take it away from them. I pray that you would take it away from us. I pray that you would withhold from us so that we would turn to you and we would be desperate for you. I know that's a bold prayer. I know that's a hard prayer. I know that's a challenging prayer. But that was your heart. That's what it takes to follow you and to be with you. So if that's what it takes, that's what we want. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.